following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Should be on now. There you go. Hear it. Um, we will be in Psalm 46 this morning. Um, it's always always good to be here. I've, this, I think this is the second time I've actually preached here. Um, it's about the fourth, fifth time we've come here for different types of training. Um, really enjoy it a lot. Um, uh, really enjoy Tim and Denise and, and uh, hospitality and just the Thai people and so on. It's just been really, really awesome. So. I want to read first, before we get into Psalm 46, I want to read out of Psalm 13, uh, before we, so if you want to turn there first, but we'll be uh, mostly in, in Psalm 46. Um, let's pray as we begin. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I just pray, Lord, that it is your word that, that speaks loudly here this morning. Um, Lord, that it, it touches us in uh, real ways, um, that we begin to see uh, who you are um, and who we are as a result, Lord, and it is a mirror to us to... To, to show us your glory, um, show us um, our finite nature, our need for you, and how big and large and majestic you actually are. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I just want to read Psalm 13. It says this. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, where I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is one of the lament psalms um, that we find throughout uh, psalms. There's, plenty, uh, there's many of them. And uh, I think a lot of times we don't know what to do with them um, unless you are truly going through something and they speak to you greatly. As a matter of fact, I, I remember doing, I don't know, a series, about three, four-week series, just on the issues of depression. We had a lot of people in our church that were depressed. Um, I'd seen many people, um, Christians that were struggling with depression, I wanted to do some research on that and, and, and did a, a, a few-week sermon on it, series on it. And I remember thinking at the time that, you know, I had the research down, I had the Bible down, I had these things down, but it wasn't, it didn't hit his home to me because I'm not a very depressive person. Um, and it, it only takes about a, a sermon series to, for God to change all that. Um, as circumstances changed in my life and, and, and issues happened and became really issues of depression struck, and I did a series on some of the psalms. I did about ten psalms. And some of those were lament psalms. But I really began to read psalms as I still do today. I read a psalm a day before, I, before bed. I just read a psalm. I just keep on going through 150 psalms. You turn around, do 150 more. Um, because psalms became, in a sense, a refuge throughout this time. And ironically, through the times of downcast or depression, it is the lament psalms that speak the loudest. To speak the loudest during those times. I remember listening to a series when I was studying for depression. Uh, Ed Welsh did a series on depression. He's a Christian um, psychologist. 
um, very, very biblical. Um, and he's, he's the one that suggested, and this is before I even dealt with any of these things, that, that these lament psalms speak loud to those that are thoroughly depressed. And you would think that it would be the opposite, but it's really not true um, when you begin to realize what they are all about. And I think the issue, too, is that it's kind of funny. In the lament psalms, most of them are used, or all of them are used by the worship director, it says, for their services, for their synagogue life, for their life as a community together. And, it, and I really do believe that we have a major problem in our churches today because we don't have any place for lament. We have only places for joy and victory. When, when people that are struggling with issues, which I believe is probably at least half our people sitting before us many times, we don't have a place for that. Where is our, where is our music that actually expresses this type of thing, which, is a word, which was a psalm of the worship director used in the community to lament well? Because we are not a people that want to lament. We want a people that want to see Jesus as a place of victory only and not a place that meets us in our darkest moments of our lives. You start doing biographies on some of the great um, men and women of the faith and you begin to realize that many of them struggled with dark nights of their soul. But we continue to preach a victorious Christian life that only joy and only happiness should be a part of it. And, and it. and it's in that that we're not only preaching the wrong gospel, but we're crushing our people that are truly struggling with real issues in their life. And this happens all over the world. You see massive examples of problems that people face. I mean, some of the, the, the most horrendous things. I got an email from a friend um, last week. He's just about ready to go on a sabbatical. He's been struggling himself a little bit. And um, he gets an email from a very good friend that their 18-year-old who was on their way home from a spring break, a surprise visit back to his parents, was killed in a car accident. I mean, I'm sure you've heard these stories over and over and over. I just read recently, uh, actually, I think you were, I think it was Tim was telling me about Spurgeon. Yeah, I wish I remember the story. It was a really good story. Uh, <laughs> but just, well, I know what it was. I know, okay. Tim Pinsel probably told it. But anyways, basically Spurgeon struggling with depression and issues in his life. This is true of many of saints, but we keep on preaching a gospel that says, oh, we should always be happy and always be victorious. Um, Jesus himself says, in me you may have peace, but in the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so often we hear a gospel that's connected to that, that says we overcome everything to have peace and to have joy and so on and so on. But that is not a very biblical interpretation. Because the way we perceive that is we will always overcome things in this life. But that's not exactly what Jesus says. He says, in this life you will have tribulation. This life is like this. This life is broken. This life has issues that you will struggle with. But in me you will have peace. Just like that psalm. I don't know how many of you relate to that psalm, but I relate to that psalm. How long, God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long is this going to go, God, that you don't seem to care? And I, and I just run in with, with doing ministry and, 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 
and counseling people. So many people fall into this category. And if we don't understand certain things about God, we will fall not only into this category, but fall out of faith. Because we have been taught or been sold a bill of goods that God takes care of all your problems here on earth. But that is not a biblical idea at all. As a matter of fact, in many ways, it's a Western idea. If we live our lives with a viewpoint that the prize and the hope is the stuff of this world, we will continually be devastated by its cruelty. The stuff of this world is not the prize. And this is one of the biggest issues I have with the prosperity gospel. Biggest issue. Because what they consistently put your eyes on is the horizontal. You will be healthy. You will be wealthy. You will get what you want from God. God is not the prize. The stuff that God gives you is the prize. And as soon as we buy that in any way, we will be struck and we will be crushed by the world's cruelty. Because that is not biblical and that is not experientially even satisfying. All too often our foundations, which often are on a sinking sand, and the goods we are hoping for are a product of idolatry and a desire for comfort rather than a hope in a God eternally. So today, as we look at our psalm today, we'll see that, that only God is our ultimate refuge and strength in our harsh times, and that peace comes to us, not as removal of life's pain, but as a refuge in the midst of it. Peace comes to us, not as a removal of life's pain, but as a refuge in the midst of it. Looking at uh, verse 1, 46, actually 1 through 3, there's three parts, and actually it's broken up by the psalmist itself. And, and it is, if you look at the, if, in your verses, most likely in the top, it says, for the choir director, the psalm of the sons of Korah. This is a song, sung by the Israelites. Again, this worship idea of bringing in this, this concept of who God is in the midst of pain is hard for us to understand sometimes. But there's three parts all broken up by ending with this idea of Selah in the Hebrew. Um, no one knows exactly what the term is, but they believe it's some sort of stop, meditate, maybe an instrumental, something on that time. It's the idea is, here's some things to think about, now let's stop and think about it. And so the verses naturally break into three places, 1 through 3, 4 through 7, and 8 through 11. So let's look at the first one, a statement of faith, Psalm 46, 1 through 3. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Basically, what you have here is the statement that, that sets the tone for the rest of this passage. This is the statement of faith. And the statement of faith is clear. I will not fear in the midst of all the calamity I see around me. I will take refuge in you because it's the only refuge I have. And this is truly a statement of faith. The, one of the biggest issues we have, and I know this is true with me, and I think this is where anxiety comes through from and all kinds of issues, 
is the desire to control your environment. Okay, we're, we're always in one way or another trying to control our environments. I mean, humans are great about it. We're trying to figure out all kinds of warning systems for disasters and all kinds of things so we can minimize pain. And of course, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But we consistently, as humans, try to minimize our disasters and, and control the events of our lives. And when those events get out of our control, it causes a great amount of stress in our lives. Okay? Probably a classic for many of you and for any of us that are older is parenting. Okay? Think about it. We, we spend 18 to 20 years trying to control our kids' lives so our lives can be okay. But in reality, a lot of our parenting and a lot of that control is really the result of idolatry more than it is about a shepherding of a child's heart to love God and, and teach them about the majesty and beauty of Christ. It is controlling them so we will look good, so we will be a family, particularly if you're in ministry. Why do we have MKs and PKs? For good reason. Because pastor's kids are supposed to be perfect. So we need to control our kids to make sure that they look perfect. Until we realize that at about 13, 14, 15 years old, we can no longer control them. They are out of our control. And we have this huge rise of anxiety in our lives, and sometimes our children can be the source of our anxiety and not the blessing that Psalm 127 seems to, to promise. Okay? And this is the reality. All of a sudden, the world you're trying to control, wherever that world is, whether it's the world of work, whether it's the world of ministry, whether it's the world of your family, you are no longer in control. And now your anxiety rises because we have placed those as idols in our lives. What gives us joy? What gives us satisfaction? What are the things that gives us our worth and identity? When we can't control those things, that is the place where we struggle the most in our lives, which causes anxiety and depression in our lives. Because we've created an idol out of certain things that are no longer delivering that joy or that peace or that identity we're looking for. Ministry is probably one of the biggest ones. It's a, it's a huge mistress. We do ministry in many ways to get some form of identity until the ministry is not doing well, until things aren't happening well. There's a huge amount of stress. As a matter of fact, right now, in a, in a, there was a study, I think it was the New York Times came out, no, it was USA Today, came out with a study, the number two most stressful vocation with the most, number two most suicides is the pastorate in America. Go figure that. The place of joy the place of ministry, the place where we're supposed to go and help people to grow closer to Jesus. And then being in the ministry, of course, is a place that basically you should be joyful because you're so close to Jesus. Isn't that true? I mean, is that, isn't that the idea? It's the number two suicide vocation in the United States of America right now. In Acts 29 alone, one organization with about 250 churches, we had two suicides last year in 2010. Many other stress issues. I will guarantee you that's a result of idolatry. This is what this ultimately is. I gain my worth. I gain my satisfaction through fill in the blank. Whatever that is and whatever you're, kind of, you're trying to control is we ultimately 
are moving away from the only thing that gives us strength and refuge in the midst of these problems. And that you can fill in that blank with a thousand things. Why, did, why is there a fair amount of idolatry in, in ministry? Stress brings that. Well, I'm going to gain my joy. Or I'm going to gain some satisfaction somewhere else because I'm not getting it at home or whatever our dumb excuses are. Okay? Do we believe, actually, that God is our refuge and strength? We look at Psalm 113 when he says, Where are you, Lord? But he ends up, I have trust in your loving kindness. This is what it comes down to. All the lament psalms, except for one, have this but statement. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I'm not so sure I like it. But I'm trusting in you. My biggest issue is not with God's sovereignty. Really, this comes down to a point of God's goodness, not His sovereignty. You can sit there and go, you know what, I believe God's in control. And I, Christians, you're depressed and people nicely try to say things to you. It's, it's always not helpful um, at all. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's like, you know, you know you, Mike, you, you're not trusting. That's true. I already knew that. Um, you know, and, and God is sovereign. He's taking care of everything. I believe that 100%. But in times like these, I'm not sure he's got my back. That's the bottom line. I'm just not sure he has my back. See, that is a, that's a simple way in for Satan to go, you know what, yeah, you believe in the sovereign God. He's in control, but he is not good. He doesn't care that much. That's why he's an absentee landlord, according to uh, Al Pacino and Devil's Advocate, as the devil. He's an absentee landlord. He doesn't really care. But as Al Pacino says, as, as Satan, but I'm a fan of man. I love you, man. I'm, I'm here for you. See, those words are true words. That's Satan going, where's God? Where's God in all this? And the psalmist says, He's my refuge and my strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not have anxiety. I will not fear in the midst of this calamity. Why? Because I know somehow that not only is God present, but He is strong and He is good. And He is good. Anthropologists basically say that humans assuage their fears by creating gods. I don't think that's that far off the track. I think we've created all kinds of gods to deal with our issues in our lives. And they could be many different idols that we work towards. Many different things that become more important to us than the most important thing. And, and Satan's great at using things that are good. Your kids are good. Your family's good. Ministry is good. But when the good things become the ultimate things, they become idols that rule our lives. No longer is God our refuge and strength, but the thing that gives us worth, the thing that gives us joy or whatever, becomes that refuge. And we will run to it every time. And at this point, in fact, Jeremiah 2.13 is one of my favorite verses because I think it hits the heart of humanity right where it's at. He says, my people... He's talking about the Israelites. These are his guys. These are his people. This is the church. 
Because here's my people's problems. They've committed two evils. Evil number one is they rejected me, the fountain of living waters. And they've made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a phenomenal imagery of who we are. When we reject the only source of life, we don't stop worshiping. We will create something else to worship. And so we do. The problem is they don't satisfy. So even when it's going good, we have problems. Because it's like a broken pot where you put the water in, but you need water for life, but it goes out the bottom, so you have to keep on filling the pot. The imagery is fantastic. And again, what are you filling the pot with? could be something good. As soon as you make your family an idol, just remember one thing, and I've told my people this many times. God is in the business of crushing idols. Don't put your family there. Don't put your family there. You're putting your family in great danger by making them the idol of your life. God clearly demands in Scripture that there'll be no other gods before Him. Don't put your family in a place they ought not to be. Your family is to enjoy. The good things in life are to enjoy and to bring them up so that they can reflect God's glory in this this world and to enjoy one another. But they're not there to give you your identity, to give you your worth, to give you your salvation, to give you your joy. That alone comes from worshiping the only one worthy of worship. That's the God who created everything. So he tells us to stop, think about it. And four through seven is kind of the center of this faith. What is the what are we centering on? He says, There's a river of life whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. He begins off, he says, there's a river whose streams make glad to bring joy in the city of God. And this imagery has been used all through Scripture, including Jeremiah 2.13. We reject a God who is the fountain of living waters. This, this concept of streams as who God is to us in a metaphor, in imagery, is all through Scripture. Matter of fact, in John 7, Jesus uses the metaphor about Himself. He says, If any man is thirsty, in verse 37, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of life. Another concept that's very clear is when we turn all the way to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 22. You have a picture of what God is doing in bringing the new heavens and new earth and so on and bringing it all together. The culmination of what He began in Genesis, I believe. And what does He say? He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river there was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit yielding its 
fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall remain forever and ever. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God, the spirits of the prophets, sent His angels to show to His bondservants the things which much, must shortly take place. This concept of in the middle of God's city is this river of life that gives life, that brings joy. And the reality of what this river is, is ultimately comes in the person of Jesus Christ. That our joy is in God through Christ. That there will be an innermost, out of our innermost being will flow life. Will bring forth joy in the midst of our pain. Philippians itself is written in prison. And yet, all through the book, Paul discusses this idea of joy. And brings forth like 13 times in four chapters some derivative of joy or, or rejoicing is in there. The only way we can rejoice and have any joy in a broken world is to see the world in a different light than just a horizontal light. Of having a hope in something larger than it. And realizing the gospel brings us back to what we were created for. Worshiping the God that created us. We're created for that. Humans don't stop worshiping. We worship at every level. I played 13 years of football. I've coached football. I've played in big stadiums. I've been to games where there's games in big stadiums. I've been to other athletic events. I've been to concerts. We worship all the time. We praise and we get excited about things that make us excited. And as Jonathan Edwards said, it is because we praise that which we love, and the praise completes the worship event. So when your favorite team, if you're an American, and you follow American football, scores a touchdown, you don't just sit there like we usually do at church and go, hmm, that's cool. That's all right. Yeah, not bad. See, we relegated God to less than a touchdown in America. That's just the, the killer. That's, that's the, God is so familiar that He's no longer even big. He has been brought down to something that's far beyond anything else we get excited about in our world. God isn't big. God doesn't care. God's not that good. It's easy in our lives to let these little things in and still be doing your ministry and still be doing things and living life but God is no longer the center point to your worship. Something else is. We can't worship that which we do not love. And ultimately, we can't do mission without the fuel that comes from worship. I mean, John Piper, I think, is dead right on this. That mission comes from a zeal 
for God. Um, I'm an Apple guy, a Mac guy, okay? So all you PC people around. Anyways, uh, one of the things I like about Apple and Mac is Steve Jobs. Huh? <laughs> and, um, because I actually think he's creative, and I'm not going to get into that whole idea. All right, but I do. I think he's a creative force. And I like that. There's something that's attractive there. But when he hires his salespeople, he calls them evangelists for their gospel. Because he doesn't want salesmen. He wants evangelists. And the difference between an evangelist and a salesman is clear. A salesman might be able to sell a product that he doesn't believe in. Evangelists can only sell a product that he loves. Evangelists want to speak about the product because they love the product. He wants to hire those guys. And when you walk into an Apple store, they're all evangelists. It's kind of weird, actually, okay? It really is. We know all the propriety issues in Mac and Apple. We know all the problems. We know the fact they make you buy different cords for different, you know, new upgrades. And every time they upgrade, you have to do something different. We know all that. We, all, we know all the things that Apple is breaking the rules of technology. But all the Apple proselytes and all the converts think it's the greatest thing ever. We're evangelists. We love the product. I'm, I'm speaking from an iPad. I mean, you know, we just... <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, it's funny because about a couple of years ago, I don't know if you guys heard of this, or I know I've got X amount of Americans here and so on, but there's a product in a, in, selling on infomercials all across. It's gotten huge. It's called P90X. It's a, it's a fitness program, okay? I've been, we've been doing that for a couple of years, and... Um, now I'm into another program that's off that program. But anyways, I've been an evangelist for P90X. I, I've probably sold, I, I don't work for them. I don't get one penny. I think it's a really good program. So I've got like 10 friends that have bought P90X and are using it. I'm an evangelist. That's what an evangelist is. They like the product. God doesn't need salesmen trying to sell a gospel that they don't really ever, they don't really believe in anymore. They don't really believe that the joy that we're seeking so badly comes from God and that the stuff God gives us. If we just see God for the stuff He gives, there's going to be a lot of issues, I think, in our own lives. God makes the city glad that the river that runs through the city, the streams itself, makes glad the city of God. It brings joy to that reality. It comes only in Christ. Only in Christ. God is in the midst of His city. And that gives hope in a very broken place. Our hope can come only from God and not from things that we are trying to control. And that segment ends again with the Lord host is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. It goes back to the idea that our strength is from God. Our joy, our satisfaction, our identity, everything comes from God and knowing God. We are made for that. And then lastly, look at the means and the purpose of this faith. 
He says, Come behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations um, in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the the bow, cuts the spears in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now I love verses like this because he starts off as, Come behold the works of the Lord. You know, you think about this. I mean, if we were going to fill in the blank there, at least me, come behold the works of the Lord. Wow. Well, God, I mean, everything's going good. I mean, look at the works you're doing. My ministry's going great. My family's going great. I I feel great. Those are the works of the Lord. People are getting healed. People are getting saved. People, all these things, the works of the Lord. That's what I would want to fill in the blank with the the next line. That's what I'd like to do. Because it would be so much easier to say, no more poverty, no more destruction, no more sin, no more problems. There's the works of the Lord. But the psalmist says, come behold the works of the Lord, like it's a happy time. And the next words out of his pen is, who has brought desolations on the earth. Think about that. One of my my favorites actually is Habakkuk. Okay? Um, I really do. I mean, I, I think... He starts off Habakkuk um, like this. Lament. This is what I love about the Bible, by, by the way. These guys are they're true, man. I mean, they, they, you can resonate with them. This is not about some fake God that always makes things perfect. This is about a real world with a God in the midst of it. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence and you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness before me? Strife exists and contention arises. The law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. Hyperbole, hyperbole, hyperbole. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. He's in the same boat as the psalmist. Why aren't you doing stuff for me, God? Look, I look around. You're killing my people. You're crushing me. You're not giving me what I want. You didn't give me the grades I wanted. You didn't give me the husband I wanted. You didn't give me um, success in my athletic endeavor. I'm not, my ministry's crumbling. I lost my job. I lost my child. God, where are you? You're not there. I cry out to you and now all I see is violence. All I see is the problems you're bringing forth. And here's God's answer. You've got to love this answer. Very close to Psalm 46. Look among the nations, observe and be astonished. Wonder, because I am doing something in your midst. Oh, he's stopping the violence now. He's giving me what I want. My grades have improved. Okay? I'm now doing great in athletics. My ministry is fantastic. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. That's not quite the answer I was looking for. All right? I was looking for something better than that. But see, we have a God that we have told ourselves is always going to put on our plate something perfect. And we don't realize that what God is consistently moving us to is Himself, not the stuff on your plate. But we have a whole gospel that says if you have God, you will get good things. And there's a truth to that. God is a God that blesses. 
God is a prosperous God. The question is, how does that work in real life, in real time, in the Bible? That's why I believe we have so much problems with the writings of Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and these guys. We don't know what to do with them because they actually open the Bible and write it on their pages and we all look at it and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe God ordered the killings of thousands of people. That can't be the God that I got taught about in a flannel graph in Sunday school. That's not the God I know that's a God of love because we no longer have a God of wrath. We no longer have a God that's just as much as He is loving. So we don't know what to do with those guys. And so most of us just stick our heads in the sand and says, well, I don't know, I'm just not going to read those books. Because those, those are negative books. But those are books that people are reading. Those are books that some of our teenagers are walking away from their faith because for the first time, they're hearing about a vengeful, wrathful God. And you're going, where is that God in the Bible? Right in Daniel Dennett's book. We no longer know the God that we are claiming to serve and love. He is not vengeful. He is not mean. But He is just, He is righteous, and He is holy. As much as He is loving and gracious. So much so that that God took on the wrath upon Himself for our being and for our salvation. This is the greatness of this God, that He's truly just, that the evil in the world will be judged. God will break the bows and the spears. He will crush the wars. He will stop everything. And He will judge evil for itself, including your evil and my evil. But the difference is, it's not a sacrifice of some animal every day to appease this angry God. But this God who is just stepped onto the cross and took the penalty of His own justice and His own wrath that upheld, according to Romans 3, His justice. He says He does all this in Romans 3.25 to demonstrate His righteousness and His justice. Because God is just. Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens do not understand that because they are their own gods. They've created their own idols. But we are called to bow before the greatest God, the only God that exists that have created us and allowed the calamity for ultimately His glory and His pleasures and then saved His people by taking upon His own judgment and wrath for our benefit. That's an incredible thing. But we've made it less than a touchdown. We've made it less than a score in a soccer game. It's no longer that important. As a matter of fact, it's being attacked so much. This idea of the cross is being attacked. And because it's being attacked, God becomes an also-ran. He's just another God amongst many other gods in this world. If it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ, we'd have a capricious God. But we don't. We cannot denigrate the reality and the truth of the cross because it's the center point of realizing that God will and has destroyed and has broken down and has busted the the whole thing called evil. And ultimately, revelation will come true where the new heavens and new earth has come together. But in the meantime, He's brought forth His church 
to be a reflection of His glory to the nations. And that's why we exist in this broken world. He just ends. There's two, two key things. Psalm 46 here. Two key things. First, he says, cease striving and know that I am God. Here is the, the means to faith. Stop trying to control things. Where is your trust? Is it in your control mechanisms? Including religion, by the way. We can get really religious. We can fall in pretty easily into religious things to do. Very easily. And then think we're pretty spiritual about it. I believe that's, that's the older son in Luke 15. And do you remember the older son's response to the father's grace? I've done everything for you. I've done everything you've asked. You can feel the finger in God's face. I've done everything you want me to do. And you have never given me a party. You've never done this for me. That's a guy ministering for God as an idol. Idols will always cause either bitterness or some form of self-righteousness. I'm better than you because I do. Or I'm really mad at God or somebody else because he didn't come through. Cease striving and know that I'm God. Quit playing the games. Quit, quit trying to control every aspect of your life. And trust me, I am breaking the bows. I am ceasing the wars. I'm the only one that can. Open theism is a, is a theism on the market right now I think is horrendous. It's the idea that God doesn't know the future. He can't really know completely the future. Then we don't have a God then. You're worshiping a really great guy. Because if I can't trust that God is ultimately has got something to plan and tomorrow He understands what's happening and He's got it, then we don't really have the God of the Bible. Who are we trusting? The means to this faith, this means is, a, is a stopping, striving, and controlling. And the purpose is I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted on the earth. God acts for His glory. God's demand for praise is not in contrast to our desire for joy. Our desire for joy and happiness and God's demand for praise and glory work in concert with one another. God is the most glorious thing. Therefore, our worship goes to the highest thing we could worship and we gain excitement and praise out of that and joy when we praise the things we love. We are made for that. God will be glorified. God will be exalted. This is His purpose for everything He does. And that purpose is what ultimately gives us our joy. Seems kind of sometimes contradictory. Like if, 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 you know, if, if a person came up to you and said, you know, you need to worship me. I hope you would not, first of all. But I mean... If they did, they're not worthy of that worship. So we think when God demands this in His glory, I've literally heard Christians say, well, that's kind of egotistic. There is nothing higher to worship. God's demand for praise 
is the root to our happiness. It's possible to be grieved and hurting in the Christian life, but never fearful and hopeless. Hopelessness comes when we move away from the truth that God alone is with us and He is our refuge. When we move away from that, we become fearful and we become hopeless. The psalmist wants us to stop and think and remind us that the Lord God of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our strength and our stronghold. So the question is, what are you trusting for your security? What is causing your disbelief or your lack of trust or anxiety or fears? Usually, God isn't good enough or God isn't strong enough. But whatever this is that is causing your greatest anxiety, most likely is an idol that needs to be dealt with in your life. It's the one thing I found true throughout the just the struggles in the last few years. The one thing that God has been clear on is the idols that have caused the stress. Now, getting rid of idols is, is very, very difficult. Most of us think that the holiness of God is worked around a few things not to do and to do. So I do the right things, don't do the wrong things, I'm cool with God. But our lives is a process of dealing with the bigger issues in our heart. Jesus clearly said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles a man, but that which comes out of his mouth is what defiles him. For out of the heart comes forth all kinds of sins. And we're so big on the little outside things that people do, and as long as they don't do those things, they must be okay. Well, they don't drink. Well, they don't smoke. They don't do this. They don't do that. They must be okay. Well, you just, you just basically described a Buddhist, many atheists that I know, Many Mormons I know. The route to righteousness is not you doing a few things or not doing a few things. The only route to righteousness is by Christ on the cross paying the penalty for your sins that we repent of and we live a life of recognizing the largeness of that cross. I think a lot of us, and I usually have a diagram I didn't put up, just in closing that if you can imagine a funnel and one side of that funnel is God's holiness and the other one is your sin. And there's a cross that begins this process in the beginning. When we boil or we reduce God's holiness to a bunch of do's and don'ts and raise up our we're not so bad type people, that cross remains very small in that funnel. But the more we begin to recognize God's holiness in our sin, that cross gets larger and larger and larger on that funnel as we walk with Jesus. And I believe Romans 7 is right in the middle of that. I believe Paul is struck re with reality of who he is. But he doesn't end it. He goes to Romans 8, 1. Thank God. Thank God for what God has done. Thank God for the glory of God. Thank God for the love of God in our lives. Because without the love of God on the cross of Jesus Christ, we would be as lost as anyone you can imagine, no matter how good you think you are. That's a beautiful thing. And we begin to realize that cross is bigger and bigger and bigger. Because God's holiness and the gap between us and Him was so huge that we were truly dead in our trespasses. And we needed to be made alive before we can even have a will that works towards God.
But literally, Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace through faith. And that is a gift of God that no man should boast. Even the faith itself. God is way bigger than any idol that is controlling you today. And maybe we need to take our idols and begin to do some clear heart work on what those things are. What is motivating me to do things in my life? Is it the love of God? Is it the love I see of God? Is it the the majesty of God? Or am I still trying to please God, please my parent, please somebody else? God is our only refuge and strength. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your psalms, Lord. We thank you for your word. Your psalms are incredible. They give us just an incredible structure to realize, Lord, that there's people who have gone before us that have struggled with so many issues. But there's always that but. We love your salvation. We love the hope we have in our calamity. That when we see the Bible characters and many, many men and women throughout church history that have been resolute in their faith, been able to withstand some of the worst calamity humans have ever seen. Lord, give us that strength. Reveal to us the issues in our heart that bind us that control us, that create our fears because they become something greater than they are. And that you could be our refuge and our strength in the midst of our pain. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.